world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions, gamers dominate the tabletop, and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies, and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. How did you get in my house? Shh, it's a secret. (laughs) And tonight, we're going to be talking about science in popular culture, which is also how I got in Don's house. Science rules. (laughs) All right, so... Before we talk about science and popular culture, though, we should probably do our usual thing and actually discuss, well, what exactly do we mean by science? Because (laughs) what exactly is science? Is science just the falsification method that we use to actually determine the physical laws of the universe around us? Or is there something more to it, Don? It's it's probably really good you put it that way, because when you talk about science and pop culture... Mm -hmm. There's kind of two aspects to that. One of them is actual science, and then one of them is what you're doing with the science in your your story or setting or whatever. Mm -hmm. Because a key thing about science in real life and the scientific method, which I think people know it's, it's hypothesis, experimentation, synthesis. The idea that I come up with an idea, I test it, and then depending on the results, it supports my my idea or it disproves it. At which point I come mm-hmm. up with another idea, blah, blah, blah. Right. That's kind of the, 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 the key to, to science. And science was developed as a way of, of overcoming a lot of the human brain's inherent problems. The human brain has problems? Oh, we got tons. Human beings are, we're so damn stupid. We, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's because part of our brain, like, uh the subconscious part really can't tell fact from fiction. Right. It literally can't. (laughs) Yeah. And we, we've talked about that before. That's why people get hooked on celebrities because your brain thinks celebrities are your friends. The, the same part, Mm. like if, if you see an article about Brad Pitt or Drake, the same part of your brain that lights up reading that article or seeing an interview is the part that lights up when you hang out with your buddies. Mm -hmm. Like your brain thinks celebrities are your friend. Because of that, we draw all kinds of weird, fallacious uh, kind of conclusions. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of, like, say, lucky socks. Hey, my socks really are lucky, dude. <laughs> see, and, they got and me this far. See, and that's exactly it. That's the idea that something good happened when I was wearing these socks. They must be lucky. That's why it's I never be- take them off. Forever. <laughs> Ew. Although they're a little that, ratty and moldy right now. I've been wearing them for 20 years, but I, I've traveled across the world with them and they've kept me alive. So I'm going to keep wearing them. <laughs> See, Science. <laughs> in, in a way, you're half right. <laughs> right. And Which it's half. The, 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 the part that you're it's, it's almost science that you've okay. made an ob- you've made an observation. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, by not testing it, your brain draws that fallacious conclusion that 
if something good happened when I was wearing these socks, it must be because of the socks. Of course it was because of the socks. What else would it be? The hat? It could be the hat. Oh my God, <laughs> you're right. It could be. <laughs> oh, my hat, my beautiful hat. Oh, never mind. Anyway. All right. So, okay. So, yes, we, uh, so the, our, our brain draws all kinds of wacky conclusions. And this has <laughs> produced all kinds of imaginary stories and thoughts and ideas and religions and cults and all kinds of weird stuff. Legends, myths, fairy tales, um, presidents. Anyway, the point is, is that um, what do we do with uh, are these flawed human brains of ours? Well, this this is again. It's we've always wanted to to know why things happen. Mm-hmm. Because if I know, like Bob suddenly dropped dead, why did he do that? If I can piece together, it's because he ate those blueberries. And everybody who eats those blueberries drops dead. It's advantageous for myself. I would imagine it is. It's survival information. Exactly right. And then that's why even the idea of like planting crops, which plants grow better where? Trial mm-hmm. and error, observation, recording results. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of in our nature, except because we're geared, and as we, we've said this before too, for fight or flight. Mm-hmm. We tend to jump on an immediate answer and then hang on to that for dear life. It's because our brains are lazy and we don't want to do the actual thinking, so we just go for whatever the easiest thing is. Yeah, it's 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 it essentially yeah. If if you want to sound a little less inflammatory to our entire species, which I don't necessarily advocate because we suck. Mm-hmm. It's that idea that historically a lot of the decisions our species has had to make. You couldn't sit around thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Is, is that hungry Smilodon going to eat me or not? So you just, I'm going to run. I'm going to get my hackles up. That's still with us. Mm-hmm. That's in part why that idea of the laziest answer, it's, it's the most expedite answer is the one we want. Right. The simplest one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we go for. And what you end up getting is the first kind of, first kind of thing you get is philosophy. And philosophy is kind of our first science. And a matter of fact, a lot of what we call science nowadays used to be called natural philosophy. Yes, it did. That's true. Back in the like Aristotle days. And yep, it, it, the, the party toga days, as I refer to them. <laughs> and and it, it happens like that because, again, people would start noticing that some of these conclusions we're drawing don't work. And we always... We're always seeking a better way of getting at the truth, capital T. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that eventually leads to the, what we have, like I said, the scientific principle, where it's not just enough to draw that connection. You have to be able to kind of quantify the connection. And most importantly in science, other people have to be able to replicate your result. Right. Yes. That's very, very important because lots of people draw connections that aren't reproducible. Mm-hmm. And that's a small problem. That's why we mm-hmm. get cold fusion every couple of years. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's true. And that's why you'll get like a, 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 a any kind of outcome you can think of. Mm-hmm. You can probably find an example. Mm-hmm. 
I eat nothing but turnips and I live to be 150. Turnips are the, well, no, it might not be the turnips. There's a, a billion other things that could influence that. There was that one old dude who actually just ate McDonald's every day. He ate yeah. nothing but McDonald's and he lived like forever. Yeah, that's, I think he's still alive, actually. Um, it, it, no, mind you, his guts are probably pickled and fat, but that's not the point. Actually, he was really skinny and he was in great shape, too, if I remember right, the documentary. <laughs> Um, that it was just weird, but I think you just had a naturally weird metabolism that synced up with McDonald's food. Yeah, it, it, it could, or a lifestyle or, or it could be damn near anything because yep, there's all kinds of, of different complicated things, mm-hmm. but we want that simple answer. And that's why diets are a great example. Cause you'll see a diet mm-hmm. that'll come out that worked for one person but we don't know necessarily why it worked for that. That that McDonald's diet would kill most of us. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's not because it's anything inherent to McDonald's, but it's because you're talking about like very high fats. Yep. Uh, you're talking, and not just like fats. They're the uh, is the saturated ones, the ones that kind of sit around because your body only breaks them down for kind of long term energy. I think so. You know, I can never remember whether it's saturated or unsaturated fat that's supposed to be bad for you. Yeah, and it's and it's it's not exactly that it's bad. It's it's bad because it sits around. Yeah, yeah. So if 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 you're living the kind of lifestyle where I'm like spending you know twenty hours a day roofing, mm-hmm. then a couple of Big Macs are probably not going to kill me just because my body is burning through all of that. Yeah, yeah. But you know, but. If you're just sitting around watching Netflix for 14 hours a day and eating Big Macs and fries <laughs> and, l- and large shakes, it might have a negative effect on your health. Yeah, it could, unless you're also a speed freak and then your body's burning through all of that anyway. Okay, there's that too. There's <laughs> and you probably you probably have more serious problems, like your heart exploding. Right, but who believes in that stuff? Anyway, so... <laughs> So looping back to what we're supposed to be talking about. So that's science, basically. Um, mm-hmm. Science, falsification, reproducible results, etc., etc. Okay, so yeah. that's the base we're working from here. So how does that interface then with popular culture? This is where it gets complicated because like we were saying, mm-hmm. the nature of what's generally accepted as, as good scientific results changes. Mm-hmm. And it changes for different reasons. Uh, sometimes the original experiments we did were wrong. And well, they had other factors often that influenced them that we didn't realize. Yeah, I mean that's that's how how they're usually. Some sometimes it's it's actual bias mm-hmm. that it'll be something so ridiculous people don't believe it, or. So gratifying, they do believe it. Or you'll have, uh, I'm thinking of poor old Galileo that got censured by the church. Mm-hmm. Just because they were in power and they didn't like his conclusions. Mm-hmm. And as I recall, he only got a, he only got absolved of that a couple years ago. <laughs> yeah, the church didn't feel too bad about that. No. And so there's that. Sometimes we uh, we get better tools to measure with. Mm-hmm. And that's something that changes science. Sometimes it's uh, somebody comes up with a better idea. Mm-hmm. Like people don't realize uh, Sir Isaac Newton came up with a lot of the laws of physics 
and the basis of a lot of physics that that we had used ever ever since he had been he'd been uh, writing his books. Mm-hmm. But once we got out into space and we developed quantum physics, which deals with with bigger numbers and 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 that, we learned mm-hmm. that some 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 of his stuff was wrong. Well, yes, he was working with limited knowledge. There was only so much he could do. Yeah, and 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 the thing was, we still use a lot of his formulas because we found they work well enough mm-hmm. that you only start having problems when you go out into space and you're dealing with planets that have radically different, like say, gravity from Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and we came up with better, more accurate formulas, but they're a lot more complicated. And if I'm just building a bridge. Isaac Newton's stuff worked perfectly fine. Here on Earth, under these circumstances, it's totally okay. Yeah. That that goes back to with the idea of the uh the fad diets. Mm-hmm. That, you know, one of the complaints people have about science is nah, they don't know what we should eat. First they're saying eat meat, and then they say don't eat meat. Well, some of that changes because our circumstance changes. It does. I would argue in the case of fad diets, one of the problems we run into is is that there are different people. I know this is a shocking fact. There are different <laughs> people with different metabolisms and different uh, metabolic circumstances. Some diets work really well for some people and they work really shitty for others. And yeah. we're kind of still figuring out why. Yeah. And that's kind of just the way it is. And sometimes outside stuff changes because you think about like uh, the, the food pyramid. Mm-hmm. has been around for, geez, what, since like the 30s or the 40s? I think it's the 40s. I'd have to double check that. Yeah, um, 40s, 50s at the latest. And when you go back, like they said, you know, eat a ton of grains, eat a ton of meat. Nowadays they say that's carb, that's bad for you. Well, in like the 40s, the 50s, you still had a lot of people who did a lot of farming, which is labor-intensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, factory work was labor intensive and, and dangerous because you know a couple guys get eaten by the machine whatever keep going yeah 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 it happens <laughs> and it required a different diet because overall more people were engaged in heavy physical activity actually when, we're totally wrong by the way the food okay. pyramid was established in sweden in 1974 oh okay oh the was it yeah, the food pyramid is apparently from 1974. Uh, it was created by Sweden's Board of Health to develop the idea that basic foods were both cheap and nutritious and supplemental foods add nutrition missing from the basic foods and to encourage them, to people to eat these other things and such. Um, I believe it was, uh, yeah, and the USDA absorbed it, but there's a catch. The American version basically is, was partly uh, designed, if I remember right, to support certain uh, agricultural products. Yeah, it was the the, the Grain Council. Okay, yeah. well, I'm thinking of something older than then, because I'm thinking of all those, uh, all those like uh, 1950s Rift Tracks educational films where they talked about diet and they're just shoveling light bacon and milk down these kids' throats. <laughs> well, a lot of those things were also developed, at least in the United States, with the idea of uh, making sure that Americans were eating certain products and... Uh, if I remember, milk's one of them, if I remember right, where mm-hmm. milk wasn't actually like, considered a uh, basic everyday like food that you should be drinking or something like that. But eventually, but 
So, but to help the milk farmers and dairy farmers, they basically they make sure it was added to the food pyramid, and so yeah. Oh, it was milk and cheese. Yeah, if I, I remember right. I mean, some of them we we do eat, but historically, there's some evidence that they're that they were useful, but not everyone took them, and then but then eventually they're like, no, no, you need to eat it, and so for your calcium mm-hmm. and vitamin A and vitamin D, so people started to, but unfortunately. It's turned out that maybe they're not as good for us as we thought they were. Right. And then, of course, there's people that are lactose intolerant for for whom it's really not good for. (laughs) Or those around them. Exactly. Um, So there's been a lot of controversy and other things. But, yeah, uh, nutritional education, history of USDA, nutritional guides. When did they start? The first USDA nutritional guides were published in 1894 by Dr. Wilbur Olin Atwater as a farmer's bulletin. Okay. In Atwater's 1904 publication, titled The Principles of Nutrition and Nutritive Value of Food, he advocated variety, proportionality, and moderation, Mm. proportionality and moderation, measuring calories, and an efficient, uh, affordable diet. Um, Let's see. Oh, here we go. I know what you're thinking of. In 1943, during World War II, the USDA announced the Nutrition Guide promoting the Basic 7 Food Groups to help maintain nutritional standards under wartime rationing. The Basic 7 Groups were green and yellow vegetables, Mm -hmm. oranges, tomatoes, grapefruit, potatoes and other vegetables and fruits, milk and milk milk products, meat, poultry, fish or eggs, bread, flour, and cereals, and butter and fortified margarine. Okay. So there we go. Okay. And and then it was reduced down to the basic four, milk, meat, fruits and vegetables, breads and cereals, and then the pyramid guide replaced the basic four guide. Okay. Yeah, because I remember the pyramid, because that would have been when we were kids when they started doing that. That's exactly right, but it turns out we were the pyramid generation. Okay. Because that that at first appears in seventy four, and we were both born in the early seventies. So there you go. So we grew up during that era. Okay, so yeah, that explains why they're still uh, in all them educational films shuffling bacon down kids' throats like no tomorrow. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, as long as it's meat, it counts. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that clears so, that. And- yep. Yep. Exactly. Um, and there were other foods. Yeah, the, the basic, probably the basic four was first created in 1956, science. So therefore, um, the basic four is probably the one you're mostly looking at in educational films. Okay, yeah. I doubt you're looking at the World War II basic seven. Yeah, that makes it, because the basic four were what they did into the pyramid when we were kids. Yes, basically. That's the basic, the pyramid is base, is the basic four. It's pretty much what it yeah. is. Because if you look at most pyramids, they have, surprise, four levels. Mm-hmm. Okay. Ta-da. Um, it's still very, very uh, starch-oriented and such, but, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's the way yeah. it works. And then that kind of all shows the, 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 the catch how outside stuff can influence the actual, uh, mm-hmm. the actual science behind something like that. And that is one of the problems, right? Science is always shifting and changing, as you pointed mm-hmm. out. And it's being influenced by many outside factors. Yeah. One of which is, for better or for worse, you know, uh, government. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this is maybe one of the reasons why people, certain people don't trust the government that much because the government or those in power, let's, we'll just say those in power because it's not always the government, but those in power are definitely influencing science in good ways and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes the science doesn't work with what they want it to say. So therefore they will do their best to tamp it down or ignore it or eliminate it as the case may be. Um, play yeah. with it, alter it, take your pick, take your pick of terms, but they monkey with it in one form or another. Um, and it can be, for example, because your research just discovered that your product is actually not as nutritious as you thought it was. Yeah. Do you actually release that to the public and watch your company go bankrupt? Or do you just quietly ignore that research? Hmm, let me think. Considering that a lot of the research about different foods is sponsored by the companies that produce them mm-hmm. or the food boards or whatever that produce them. Huh. I wonder how that works. There's a lot of um, problems with science, definitely, in terms of uh, it's being influenced by outside factors. The number one factor, of course, being money. Yeah. Um, whether it's costing someone money, whether it makes someone money. And, of course, whether the scientists can get funding to do that thing. Yeah. Um, and this is heavily determined by society in a lot of ways and people's view of um, pop culture or well, of culture in general. Like a beautiful example of this is, so let's, let's say you want to do a um, research into something related to, oh, I don't know. Um, you know, whether, um, whether, what would be a good example? I'm just trying to think of one that's not going to get me into much trouble. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, uh, the opening of Idiocracy. You mean, uh, Brondo being what plants crave? No, the idea at the very beginning when they showed how, like, people's, like, overall intelligence was starting to 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 slide and it was the the speech and you would think science would have done something to counter this but all of the top minds of the era were busy trying to maintain erections and figure out how to grow hair on places pretty much yeah Mm -hmm. because the money goes to where you think you're going to make the best possible return so someone is making that calculation Mm mm-hmm Yep. So you can either cure cancer or you can, you know, maintain erections and we know which will make more money. So pff, <laughs> cancer. Ah. Yeah. yeah people and, die. And a lot of times too, that happens by accident because the, the, and, and, and when you said it, when you said like the, 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 the authorities that be, mm-hmm. that's probably the, the best way of look. Cause it's not just government. It's not just business. It's whoever controls the money and the resource is going to put mm-hmm that into the stuff that interests and profits them. Exactly. And even if it's just more development for the reputation of your school or institution. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of um, incentives and uh, motivating factors that are coming into the way we look at science. And so because of this, it's no wonder that some people do actually question science, and mm-hmm. as they probably should, right? There are a lot of people that look at science and think, you know, those guys really don't know what they're talking about. They're just saying whatever they, they're just making crap up and they're just giving us numbers and why science, why should I believe in that crap? Experts, what do they know? <laughs> um, and 
it's not surprising that a, that a fair number of people, at least when you survey Americans, do think that way. Like, they really do believe that science is, like, kind of messed up. And and the, where there's no reason for us to believe experts because they're just in the service of the powers that be. And so science is ultimately biased. It's mm-hmm. horribly biased. It's horribly flawed. So why should we trust it? Yeah, and, and that comes back around to the uh, to the, where where the uh, the problem becomes the solution becomes the problem again, mm-hmm. because you find science is designed to be questioned. Mm-hmm. Good that's science what, is anyway. Well, that's what the whole scientific method come is based on, and that's why that idea of of can other people replicate your results is so important. Mm-hmm. And then working the other way, kind of the the big powers that control science will steer it in their direction. And then those of us on the receiving end mm-hmm. will engage in the exact kind of like biases and fallacies that kind of the, the, the bigger powers that be contend towards for almost the same reason. Because we'll do it out of protection. How so? Well, because again, it's it's that idea that all of these things are influencing us, right? And and, and it, mm-hmm. it typically manifests as resentment. How come I can't smoke? Like my grandfather smoked for fifty thousand years, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But we'll also jump on something that's equally like wrong, provided it makes us, us feel good. Again, we we get some kind of return from it, right? And and I think that goes way way back to something we've talked about here too, that idea that a lot of places and organizations and people have figured out how to sell that back to us. Mm -hmm. So we end up kind of just going around and around and around that people will question something, but they're not actually questioning it because number one, they're not waiting for the answer. And number two, they've already drawn their conclusion. They're just looking for something that supports that idea. Mm Mm-hmm. And then that takes us back around because the whole idea of like the scientific method and philosophical inquiry to begin with, even though it's not as efficient, it was that same idea, was to help us get out of that rut because that's how our brains normally work. Yep. So being good humans, we're figuring our way out of the solution we came up with to our the flaw in our system. Yeah, and we just keep going around and around and around. You hope that each time around, maybe things get a little better. Well, maybe. I mean, I would. I'm not sure that that's the case. At least, okay. Let's 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 move to science and popular culture. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've noticed is definitely, at least as far as Americans go, um, sorry, Americans, um, is that Americans seem to have a really schizophrenic relationship with science in their popular culture. Mm-hmm. It really it veers wildly back and forth between science is the most awesome thing ever to science is horrible and will kill us all. Mm-hmm. And those seem to be the two extremes that, that American popular culture just bangs back and forth between. Sometimes at the same time, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Depending, depending on who's in charge and what the current mood of the day is and everything else. So sometimes science is all, and other times science is the devil that's going to destroy us all. Yeah, I think it, it's easy to see that in American pop culture, I think partly because we live so close and we get so much of it. Mm-hmm. 
Everybody, mm. everybody does it. The States tends to be a little more dramatic about it. Mm. But you'll see that manifest in different ways everywhere. Because one of the best examples of, of that is you'll always see every every culture, every society, every country on Earth will do their like bright future stories. Mm-hmm. Where like science saves us, but then they'll also do their get back to nature stories, which is us running right. away from science and tech. Because for most people, science and technology are the same thing. Mm-hmm. In real life, they're not, but in pop culture, they tend to be, and that's the most obvious of that dichotomy that you'll see. Because mm-hmm. you have to remember one of the. Uh, the most well-known and popular uh, stories about the misuse of science, as I recall, mm-hmm. is British. Is British, and that's nineteen eighty-four. That's true. That's very true. Um, it came out of a period where people were definitely questioning um, science and the way it was being used against the population and against people. Mm-hmm. Except Orwell did it inadvertently. He didn't realize that. What had happened was the technology of the day is what let the party take over. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he kind of knew. I mean, he knew. How can I put this? His, I remember 1984 is not exactly about technology. Like, it's mm-hmm. more about society. Yeah. But he just, he but he extrapolates about so, on some of the things that are happening in technology of the time. Because 1984 was written in, um, ironically enough, 1949. What? Actually, it was it was written a couple of times. I think 49 is when the final version, because the original version, as I recall, was supposed to be 1954, and he wrote that in, like, the early 30s. I think he started it. I think so. Wait, um... Because he had to, he had he had to keep upping the date because he couldn't get it published, and then that date would come up. That he always wanted it to be about fifteen, twenty years in the future, because that's right. long enough that it feels futuristically enough that you can do stuff, and people aren't going to say no, it's not going to happen. Well, according to this, he actually had his um, thesis, the basically plot outline, was basically put together in nineteen forty four. Okay. Um, and then three years later, he wrote most of it on the Scottish island of Jura from 1947 to 48, despite being seriously ill with tuberculosis. Oh, fun. <laughs> uh, in 1948, he sent the final manuscript to um, his company, uh, Secker and Warburg, and it was published in 8th of June, 1949. By 1989, it had been translated into 65 languages, more than any other English novel until then. Mm -hmm. Yep. Wow. So 1984 was... When when did Orwell actually die? Uh, He died in 1950, presumably of tuberculosis. So he basically, (laughs) he was literally, he wrote it on his deathbed, basically. Wow. That that explains a lot about the uh, tone and feel of the story. (laughs) Yes, yes, it does, doesn't it? Not, not an upbeat story. Although, technically, 1984 has a happy ending. It does. Technically. Te- well, yeah. Oh, I don't mean the, the, the end where uh, where uh, Winston Smith meets up. Oh, I can't remember her name. 
Julia? Yeah, where he meets Julia at the cafe. Mm. If you if you remember 1984, there's like there's a textbook that follows the story. Mm-hmm. Where he talks about Ingsoc and he talks about society, and he talks about the language. I was just reading an article about this. Mm-hmm. What's interesting when they talk about new speak being like uh distributed throughout uh, Oceania, uh-huh. They talk about it in the past tense. Everything in that textbook at the end, which is the history of the setting, is all in mm-hmm. the past tense, which implies that everything that was in that novel at some point gets overthrown. Okay. That's true. I didn't say it was a Disney happy ending, but... <laughs> 1984, so, take what you can get. <laughs> well, okay, that's true. Uh, okay, that's, I hadn't thought about that. Okay, sure, sure. Wow. That's <laughs> most... I, I, I guess that's kind of a happy ending. Sort of. Ish. <laughs> Ish. We'll go with that. Mm. Um. Yeah. Okay. So, but yeah, he he was definitely not doing that well when he wrote it. But whatever. Mm. That's just kind of the way. That's okay. Anyway, not the point. The point is this: <laughs> um, is that so? Nineteen eighty four, I would say, is a little more social, but it does definitely envision like technology being used in ways that are definitely bad for humanity, it, and is definitely a very negative view of of technology. And of course, Brave New World, which comes out around the same time. Same mm-hmm. deal is that technology is one of those things that it, actually I, I would argue Brave New World is more about technology than 1984 is. It 1984 is, but, is more about social movement and government, whereas Brave New World is about how technology will mess with us all. Actually, the, the, the thing is they're both about science run amok because the science that runs amok in 1984, it's kind of tangentially technology, but it's psychology. Oh, good point. That science is hadn't thought about that. Yeah, science is used against the masses in a very calculated way, very very scientific way, because of the science of of, of uh, psychology. Mm-hmm. Very true. And that was something again. That was um, just before the war, like in the 30s, and that was when Freud was coming up with his ideas, and he was the first kind of psychologist, psychiatrist that really caught the public attention. Mm-hmm. And I think when you're getting into later on, Orwell probably tapped into that idea because you were you were watching like the Nazis were really good at propaganda and propaganda was mm-hmm. psychology. And I, That's I think because the Nazis were using Freud's theories, thanks to Freud's nephew, his his niece. Oh, what? It was no, his, his nephew. I thought it was his niece that was the uh, the evil one. <laughs> Was it his niece though? His, his his nephew Edward Bernays. Bernays was working with uh, Goebbels to. Oh, um, they got married, wasn't it? That they got married. That that Bernays married his niece, and that was how we got advertising. Mary Ber- Bernays married Freud's niece. I thought it I was because I, I I thought it was wait. his niece. Yeah, we have no, Edward it. Bernays is actually is Freud's nephew. I thought. But I didn't. I didn't think it was by birth. I thought it was his like niece by blood, is the one that continued his work, and she's the one that added all the weird, you know, like sexual deviancy kind of stuff to Freud's actual work. That no parents, uh, Eli Bernays, Anna Freud. Okay, 
Eli Bernays, and Freud. Relatives, Martha Bernays, Sigmund Freud, uncle, Isaac Bernays, great-grandfather. No, Bernays is actually directly, he's a blood relative of Freud. Okay. Um, and so he's, uh, for those who aren't familiar, for those who are listening, Edward Bernays is the father of um, public relations and modern marketing. And he's um, also he used, Mr. Burns. He's also Mr. Burns, if you see him, that's true. Um, he basically used public relations and marketing. We've mentioned him many times before in the show. Um, he used Freud's theories and like human psychology to up marketing so that it was much better at controlling and manipulating people. And even the marketing and ads you see today are basically evolutions of the ideas that, that Bernays came up with using yeah. Freud's work. Yeah. Um, Edward Bernays is, of course, most um, famous thing was, of course, the Torches of Freedom routine, where he basically uh, made uh, cigarettes into a symbol of feminism, how mm. women were now stealing men's power by because only men smoked at the time by by lighting up and suddenly within a few years women everywhere were smoking there's a whole long story you can read about that that's the famous torches of freedom campaign mm -hmm. but he also apparently worked uh, with the united fruit company with the cia to overthrow the elected guatemalan government in 1954 he worked with many people and he also worked if i believe if i recall right with goebbels as well i think it was he worked with the nazis at least a little bit yeah, he also worked uh, with uh, he mm -hmm. worked with he worked with the Republicans. He's a big part of uh, Reagan's campaign in the late nineties. That wouldn't surprise me, actually. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Could have, I'm positive that he actually did work with the uh, Nazis at one point. I have to look, but I remember reading that somewhere. But anyway, okay. I can't find a reference to it in his Wikipedia entry though, but I'll have to I'll have to look it up. Um, okay. But yeah, in any case, but Bernays was one of the most influential people in the history of mankind, actually. But mm -hmm. he's again one of those people that almost no one remembers or knows about. Yep, except for how badly he treats Waylon Smithers. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. There is that. Um, and the key again is he's using science to do it. Mm -hmm. And and like I say, it's 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 one of those things. Mm -hmm. You can you can really see it because I think when we think about science and pop culture nowadays, it all sort of starts in the fifties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does but, actually. I mean, and it's ironic that I think it's that post World War Two era because I think World War Two basically threw science forward at a very rapid pace. Science was already yeah. going forward, but oh my god, did World War II throw gasoline and accelerant on the fire and just made made that puppy burn. So yeah. suddenly America was and the world was basically engaging in catch up with society and science after World War II. Yeah, because I think what ends up happening is when you get to World War II, and we've talked about this as well, mm -hmm. that the idea of the all-powerful alien invaders kicking our asses kind of really takes off in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because when, when the, the Nazi war machine started, that's what it felt like. Like the, this little country, nobody gave a shit about where he kicked their ass. We don't have to worry about them. Comes out of nowhere with like weapons and technology. Nobody else has ever seen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It scared people. And then it was seen that advancing technology and, you know, advancing science, specifically though technology, because I think this is where people started con conflagrating them, 
that's a big part of what led to winning the war. Mm. Yeah, As in embodied by the atom bomb and then that's why the 50s was like you know the age of the atom atomic power was going to do everything and blah 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 Mm -hmm. and i think yeah again you see that because what people again don't realize too is that science isn't just technology like we were just saying psychology is a part of it and you can see it different eras that psychology gets kind of thrown into the mix as well that this idea that science can mess with your head and you can't do anything about it kind of thing Mm-hmm. and they thought that was awesome they being the governments for the most part thought that was pretty awesome and so they started playing with it as best they possibly could because they wanted to see what it could do it was like they were given huge new toys to play with it was but you have to remember when you look back at, at experiments like that America and Russia and even the Brits did back then, it wasn't the, it wasn't the government that could like weaponize psychology. It was business. It was marketing. That was the real success story with, with abusing this new brand of science. <laughs> well, yes, of course, because if you can make money from something, you're going to do it. Yeah. And again, it's, it's also that idea. Like we were just saying that you can accidentally influence mm-hmm. stuff because what ends up happening is the businesses were the ones with all of the resources to put behind the research mm-hmm. that the government could put like a million dollars into analyzing whether or not uh, making our uniforms this color scares the enemy more but a big business could hire another big business that had millions of dollars and all they did was find out how to fuck with people there's that Although, do keep in mind that this was the period of the Cold War, so the American government especially, but Western governments in general, and not-so-Western governments, were spending ridiculous amounts of money looking for ways to up their advantages in every way possible over their enemies. So, you did see, like, the CIA spent ridiculous amounts of money on psychology and experiments and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, The Army, the Navy, they were all spending tons of money on science in one form or another. They were, but when you look at like the psychology, a lot of times what they were doing is hiring the same marketing companies that the big companies were using to influence people and saying, well, yeah. yeah, instead of making them buy a cars, the, how we can convince them that we're unstoppable supermen, so they'll give up. <laughs> that would make things easy. And that's okay. That's one of the reasons if you're, if you're into like, um, secret histories or conspiracy theories you'll see these weird team-ups between like the u.s government and like a toy company mm-hmm. why, why did they team up what are, they're doing some top secret thing well that that happened the, the, i forget who the company was but it was back in like the 90s i think mm-hmm. that the american government wanted this company to make uh, an osama bin laden doll that okay. they were going to sell in countries sympathetic to, to him and, and his cause. And what they wanted it to do is that over a period of time, like say months, the paint mm-hmm. would deteriorate on the face. So he had it, he kind of looked like like the, the like Darth Maul underneath it. That it would reveal oh. this demonic visage. And they wanted to do that to like and they were working with I forget which toy company it was. To, to pr- oh. And they produced a couple, but they decided it wasn't reliable enough to work. Right. Also, why would kids be buying a Osama Bin Laden doll? Who would buy that for their kids? Even before he was actually a, you know, uh, 
the World Trade Center thing happened. Fanatical why, parents? I guess. I guess, is he bought to be the enemy of their G.I. Joes? Is that the point? No, it would be, it would be like for, for places that were sympathetic to him. You'd buy it like you'd buy like a, like a figure of your favorite giant robot or your favorite like okay, sports ball Okay, okay, it was that kind of thing. Okay. And that was why they thought, you know, it would demoralize them if like the face melts off and reveals this demonic image at some point. That's kind of a neat idea. I get the idea, but okay, all right. It it does, but again, I don't think you know the the opposition is like bizarrely superstitious enough that they'll think that was a sign from God. They probably just think they used cheap ass paint on this thing. Yeah, exactly. Well, that looks pretty disgusting underneath, doesn't it? Huh. And I think that's why they ultimately abandoned it because they realized they weren't like fighting cartoon characters from like the nineteen thirties. Exactly. Although, exactly. I, although another. Un, un, it doesn't relate directly to science, but it's toys and combat related. It was the, um, I think it was the uh, first few years of that, the the fight in Afghanistan mm-hmm. that the uh, the Americans and American soldier had been taken hostage, and Al Qaeda was threatening to kill them if they didn't like give in to their demands. Mm-hmm. And it was discovered the American hostage that they had taken was actually like a twelve inch GI Joe knockoff that they'd filmed to look like an actual guy. I've never heard that story. That's pretty yeah. funny. <clears throat> yeah, kind of is. It wasn't real successful. I don't know if they thought it would be real successful. But, you know, why not? It cost me five bucks. I'll give it a shot. <laughs> right. Oh, my God. That's so funny. <laughs> I had oh. no idea. People are weird. <laughs> uh, okay. Stop or we'll kill this G.I. Joe figure. <laughs> Oh no, send him my 12-inch Batman. He's the only one that can save him. <laughs> oh my god. G.I. <laughs> <G>. Joe. <laughs> I wonder if someday there'll be a Netflix special about that brave, brave 12-inch soldier. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but it does show that you know, reality is kind of um, malleable. It's one of, the, yeah. one of the reasons why we need science. We need ways to falsify things and to prove whether things are actually real or accurate or not. Because if we don't have that, but if we don't have that belief becomes reality and that doesn't work so well. Yeah, I mean... It does not work well at all. It kind of works that way too, especially if you talk about pop science. Mm-hmm. Like pop culture science is always kind of... It's always iffy because it again it, it tends to follow a trend mm-hmm. and people will, will jump on board that there'll be something that's generally accepted as no this is how it works and this is how it always worked and this is how it always will work until the next trend mm. okay speaking of trends i want to talk about something i've noticed mm-hmm. this is just my own observation but i've noticed something that again this is an american thing for the most part because whatever um is that during good times, like during the the boom years, we'll call them in that, science tends to be awesome. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the attitude towards science and technology usually tends to be, this stuff is great. This is like what's bringing us to the future. It's great. It's fantastic. It's cool. There'll be a few dissenting voices, but that will usually be the, um, the main thing. And, but during the down times, the opposite tends to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not sure if it's because people are blaming science. Like, like you promised us, you know, flying cars and look where we are now. (laughs) 
and that, and you know, and but our life sucks, and and it's science's fault, or if, or maybe during the downtime, it's because we see the dark side of science more clearly, because it often gets used on the people during the downtimes more, um, to keep you know keep society under control, and we see the darker side of science there. But I've noticed that you can almost pair the ups and downs of science with the ups and downs of the economy and society. Again, at least in North America, anyway. Right. I think the reason for that is because of money. Mm-hmm. If you have okay. money, if you, if you have money, you can benefit from the science of the day. I can True. afford, I can afford the new gadget. I can afford the new super awesome car. I can afford the medicine or medical treatment that keeps me alive or cures my condition. Mm-hmm. Whereas when it's a downtime, nobody can afford that. And I think at that point, that sort of thing it becomes the object of tyranny because only the people that we like to pretend are the tyrants are the ones that have access to it at that point. Maybe I was thinking kind of something a little tiny bit the opposite. I was Mm -hmm. thinking the idea is that going back to almost a little bit, what I was saying earlier is the idea of science as a provider Mm -hmm. where during the uptimes, at least during world war two. Now that's, that's an important distinction, at least during world war two, but I think you can even, Go back further. You could probably go back to World War One as well. Um, the waves of society going forward and society being profitable usually end up somehow being linked with new science and new technologies and new ways of doing things, right? Mm-hmm. And the which inevitably usually crash at some point because things get pushed too far or they go the wrong way or you know something goes wrong and so they fall apart and then everyone's like, well, that didn't work. Well, science sucks. And then once again, someone comes up with a new way to use science and suddenly it's like, oh, science is awesome again. And we just kind of go back and forth. Like, you know, if you look at each of the boom times, mostly of the last hundred years, you'll see that, yeah, they're partly at least driven by science. They're driven by new technologies and new ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. And maybe that is because the money's there and it's going into them. But I don't think that's just that. I think science is upgrading itself and giving us new options. And each time it gives us new options, we run with it. And that produces wonderful results for a while until we eventually reach the limits and then everything collapses in on itself. That's that's my take anyway. It could be because I think tying into what you're getting at is is, um, what a professor of mine called uh, the Einsteinization of science. Okay. That... There was an article when uh, Einstein mm-hmm. came up with his uh, his general theory of relativity. Mm-hmm. There was a, a newspaper article that kind of got that w- play, published around the world that referred to the brilliant new theory of the universe, only comprehensible to four wise men, and it was it was where you started mm-hmm. to see. And I want to I want I want to kind of work on this because it ties into something else weird. Okay. But from that point on, and I think into like um, when you get to say the 50s, the portrayal mm-hmm. of science is that it's something that generally benefits us all, mm-hmm. but you have to be a wizard to use it. Like it's magic. Right. That was why you would, you, you'd always see like, you know, any kind of advancement <clears throat> um, up until the 80s. A weird thing happens in the 80s, kind of. But mm-hmm. all of these advancements in that, you had to be one of these like super geniuses, these brilliant 
science, technological marvel, super educated that can like speak to the computers and when they talk, the veins throb in their skull and their mouth doesn't move kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That the scientists, it's it's seen as that, and it might tie in with what I was saying that it's kind of seen as the the power of the upper echelon. Mm-hmm. And when times are tough, we're not just blaming science; we're blaming like all of those eggheads that let us down, all of those experts. We're blaming the wizards, the the high priests that should mm-hmm. have been looking out for us and didn't. Mm, that makes sense. Mm. And I thought about that because. In a weird kind of way, theology was kind of the original science. It was an attempt to understand the universe around us. Yeah, and it was a, it was an attempt to link action and cause, and it pre, it predates like it it's kind of the step before philosophy. Mm-hmm. Philosophy is where you kind of start wondering. Science is where you kind of start testing. But those first ways of, of kind of trying to categorize our thinking, trying to, trying to organize our higher thought, mm-hmm. is really religion. It was that idea that we would blame the gods for things, right? Mm-hmm. Thunder was the gods. You know, earthquake was the gods angry. The crops were growing was the gods were pleased with us. Mm-hmm. And there was always that attempt to link an action with a result. Right. That we we had a vague understanding that the universe was cause and effect, mm-hmm. but because we didn't have the 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 foundations, we didn't have the equipment. It was super difficult to measure that cause and effect, and that was why, like, say, the Aztecs thought we had to sacrifice people and give their hearts to the to the gods, or the sun wouldn't come up. Mm. Right. Well, they had no idea what the sun actually was. They had no real way to measure what the sun actually was, even though they had just amazing amounts of astronomy. There was that like missing part. At some point, somebody had made this weird connection and ran with it. And you, you see that again, that was hmm. that, that's that, that idea of, of, of theocracy. And it kind of relates back to this idea that the people who control science are wizards, because I went back a few decades and I noticed there's always a, a science technological magic bullet. Okay. And it's it's why when you read science fiction from earlier times, it's sometimes comical. Mm-hmm. Because you look back to the 1950s, it was the atom. Right. Atomic energy could do everything. You, know, mm-hmm. you, would, you would see like stories where, you know, Spaceman Bob is injured. Quickly, put him in the atomic regenerator. And he'd come out all healed and his uniform wouldn't be torn anymore even. Right, yeah. You get to the 60s and the thing that keeps popping up is transistors. Mm -hmm. That transistors at the back. Like, the original Iron Man. Mm -hmm. Up until, like, the 70s, the secret of what made his, his armor work was transistors. Yes, yeah. Which, if you know anything about transistors, that is damn funny, you know. <laughs> it's only my transistorized musculature that lets me lift this car in my power suit. Yeah, that's what a transistor does. You're thinking solenoids, buddy, but... <laughs> right. But that was it. Transistors did everything. You'd, you'd see that in spy movies, right? The secret agent would have the transistorized radio hidden like his ring, and that would let him, you know, communicate. Mm-hmm. When you get to the 70s, it's computers. 
Right. Computers can do anything. Like, I can just have a computer, like, you'll see, like, the hero would have one in his house. Computer, tell me where Evil Bob is hiding. <laughs> Analysis shows Evil Bob is at the waterfront. I must go to... Yeah, you know, yeah. How, how, how the fuck does it do that? If if you've ever seen a 1970s computer, it filled your house and could maybe do, like, a calculator. I know. But, again... That's the funny it, part. And it's magic. When you get to the 80s, it goes another step where it becomes chips. Mm-hmm. That putting a computer chip in things does stuff. Right? By putting a computer chip in the base of Bob's spine, he can now run super fast, lift huge weights, and shoot lasers from his eyes. Really? <laughs> That's that's pretty impressive. From just a chip, no no board or attached. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 how it was back then. I do remember that. You're right. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. You get to like the 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 nineties, and it's the internet. Ah, uh, was it the nineties that was the internet? I mean, because I'm thinking nineties seems to be where the whole nanotech thing starts. Yeah, and, and that's I was gonna say like two thousands because that was where you really see nanotech everywhere. But okay, again, valid point. You you see it in the nineties, but you're right. I mean, yeah, yeah. that's true. And that and yeah, I think more it, in the two thousands. Yep, you're right. And I think it's because when the internet first started, people thought the internet like there's a movie where in like with like the nineteen ninety two internet, the bad guys can like control street lights and make cars explode. Now, really. <laughs> Really? Take, take, uh, no, it was it was another one of of those. It, hackers right. might have done it too, but yeah, the, and that was the thing. Like with the internet, I could do anything. Really, I it's it's taking me like an hour and a half to download a picture of Picard naked, and this thing's like rearranging the whole damn city and set. Yeah, sure. And then mm-hmm. yeah, then it be then it becomes nanites, right? Nanites can just do everything. Yeah, yeah. And and again, it's it's that idea that science and magic and pop culture tend to be conflagrated. Mm. Well, oh, there is a catch, though. I mean, everything you're talking about is basically what Hollywood or science fictions or whatever's shorthand for the reason the stuff in their stories works the way it does can do magic stuff. Mm-hmm. Basically, the reason magic stuff works in their stories is that technology you're talking about but they're just buzzwords the audience the writers usually don't understand what they are which is why computer chips and transistors can do everything (laughs) and they don't it doesn't really matter it's just an excuse for them to do magical stuff in their books and or their tv shows or their movies that science as filtered through pop culture that doesn't really understand it but just needs a buzzword to make themselves go okay and that's that's pretty much all it is I, I I would I think yeah. I, I, sorry, just to continue. I would argue that that's not real science. That's not even real real science at all. But we are supposed to be talking about pop science and pop culture. Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. Go. Oh no, I think I think again. I think you're right, but I think it runs into that problem of expectation. Mm-hmm. Because that's getting to the to to the old argument. That's not science fiction. That's science fantasy. Nah. Well, that's mm. a moving that's a moving target too, and a lot of what's considered hard science in a science fiction story mm. is it's pop the other way, right? It it it's what the 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 we'll say more well informed or more knowledgeable mm. are currently claiming is 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 accurate, right? But that's again not necessarily true because realistically. Like any other other science, as we learn things, that's going to change as well. Very true. Very true. 
because that's that's why the whole idea of hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi is kind of doesn't work basically yeah Um, because today's what what we consider soft sci-fi today is hard sci-fi tomorrow as technology just catches up or comes up with new angles or new things to do Mm -hmm. or new new ways of looking at the universe as the case may be and so we can do things today that were you know 20 years ago were definitely would have been soft sci-fi but we can do it today because we figured out how well, and there was the impetus to do it. Like that's mm-hmm. one of the one of the other weird things. You can write a serious hard science fiction novel based on all the current understandable sciences, and nobody will give a shit. But the one that has guys teleporting up to the spaceship and laser blasters and stuff twenty years from now becomes the thing, just because that's what everybody was interested in. And the people yep. who got in got into designing technology thought, man. We're like tricorders awesome. Let's build one of those. And now what originally was soft is hard yeah. because it because of the reverse of public expectation. Pretty much. Well, and this goes back to the other problem, right? I mean, people will say, "Oh, you know, I want realistic hard science fiction. I want something that's like cool and that but the truth is when they're actually given it, it's like, "Oh, this is boring." And they quickly run back to soft sci-fi as fast as they can. It is. I mean, yeah. it, but, you know, it's the nature of fandom and I have to complain about crap like that. It's like, oh, it's, <laughs> this is not realistic at all. And then, you know, when then later, but and then they run back to the stuff that's super not realistic because that's because with laser guns and guys running around and space fighters that with they make screaming sounds as they pit as they fly through space. Yeah. OK, whatever. <laughs> well, because, yeah. And again, too, it's 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 that idea that we tend to draw our conclusion and then doctor things to fit. Mm-hmm. So exactly. the, the stuff that appeals to us that we think is fun, we tend to see as credible. And then if, if we're like a, a serious sci-fi nerd, we'll then try to justify it as being hard sci-fi. Cause that makes it more credible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When the fact of the matter, it's all entirely a, a crap shoot to begin with. Yep. Exactly. Oh, well, um, and that's, that's the nature of hard and soft sci-fi. So the story, the moral of the story is don't get too wrapped up in labels like that, folks. It doesn't really work and it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's just nerds trying to justify their entertainment and why it's not (laughs) stupid or silly. It is. and, And this is, I think the advantage of being old and having been like a fan for a long time. Mm hmm. Is you're you're probably in the same boat that a lot of stuff when we were young that was considered mm-hmm. the cutting edge hard sci-fi we can see how it was totally wrong because we're now living in the time they wrote about. Yep, exactly. Well, time wrong according to certain timelines and such. I mean, the you know as we you often comment, no, the cyberpunk writers were kind of right about a lot of stuff. <laughs> they just they they were just a little bit. In some cases, they were running too slow. In some cases, they were running too fast. Mm-hmm. But they were right about a lot of things. We just don't have poser gangs wandering the streets, shooting at each other yet. Well, yet. not in London. I live in Windsor. So. Oh, there is that. There is that. And, and I heard, retro- oh, oh, sorry. I was oh, going to say, ahead. but I heard New Detroit's pretty nice. They have that nice RoboCop that's going around <laughs> um, cleaning up the streets. I heard that things are pretty nice there now. <laughs> I said, nobody lives there anymore 
Well, that's what makes it so nice. <laughs> so, because I think you're you're kind of bumping into um, mm-hmm. the 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 real issue mm-hmm. with science and in, in pop culture and science and storytelling, right? It's it's that sense of plausibility and that sense of realism. The, if for from a, a production point of view, that's the advantage of science. Is if I'm if I'm writing a story based on kind of the current standard, mm-hmm. it it lends it it's it's easier to keep the um to keep kind of on the same keel throughout the story, mm-hmm. and that internal consistency lends it a little bit more plausibility and a little more solidity in the mind of the uh, of the of the the partaker. Right. Well, it also uh, is about credibility, I'd say. Mm-hmm. It's about you selling your credibility as an author. It's like, oh, look, you know, I know what I'm talking about. I'm using the current modern buzzwords that show that I have done the research and I'm a a real science fiction writer who actually knows about science and stuff. And there, there's that idea. Remember, it's all about selling selling your product to the rubes. That's really what it's all about. Right. And for the most part, in most stories, I would argue that that's all science is there for, is to sell your ideas and the things you already came up with to the rubes. The people who actually understand what you're talking about will go, no, that doesn't work that way. But it doesn't matter because they're a bunch of freaking eggheads and there's not that many of them. So you can you can just focus for the most part. I know they'll complain on Reddit or whatever, but who cares? In the end, you're the one you're the one crying all the way to the bank as you know you have the million readers that were happy with your science fiction novel, even though the science was terrible in it. <laughs> well, sometimes, sometimes Neil deGrasse Tyson will send you an angry letter. That does happen, but it generally only happens if you get super popular. Otherwise, he won't pay attention to you. So you don't usually have to worry about him. Yeah, I'm thinking of Titanic. Of all things. I know. I know. <laughs> Which they did fix. They did fix it for him. I know. <laughs> they went back and actually changed the skies and the constellations. They actually were accurate to the period. Which is so weird. But okay. Sure. Now see, that's the kind of thing personally I can't tell. Is that cool or is that not? Like, <laughs> I would go with that's pretty cool. I, mm-hmm. I always thought that that was pretty cool. Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson is a very cool guy. And he's one of those guys that's a true popularizer of the wonder of science itself. Mm-hmm. And in fact, actually, I'd like to go into that for a second. The truth is, is that even though I have a generally, I've been okay understanding of science. And I've, I've always been someone who's like been interested in science and such. It's only as I've gotten older that I've realized just how cool science and what we already know can be. Like, we spend so much time, especially with science fiction, focusing Mm -hmm. on way down the road. We forget that what we've already come up with is some really cool stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. science itself can be pretty amazing if you think about it and understand it and understand what we've actually figured out so far. But we're so busy focused on a simplified, down-the-road, vague version of it that we don't really think about the wonders of what we're really doing. If you really want to understand what I'm talking about, go listen to uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast slash radio show, Star Talk, sometime. 
mm-hmm. where he talks where he talks with great enthusiasm about the discoveries we're making now and about how you know stars form and how planets do things and about physics and things like that and it really makes you see how absolutely wonderful some of this stuff that we've even just understand really is but we're so busy focused on these simplified dumbed down versions that we usually see in science fiction, no offense, Star Trek, but that's the way it is, um, that we often forget the wonders of science today. Like, even from a... And I'm not talking about, you know, hard science fiction is awesome. That's not what I'm trying to say, although it can be if you were to play it right. But just just how much we actually know and how much some of it, if you in the right hands, could actually be really cool. Which... Leads me to a, a very good example. In fact, I even start, uh, that even kind of uh, set off this episode actually, which is the uh, Japanese manga called Doctor Stone, mm. um, which is a beautiful example of a story that's trying very, very hard to just show you how freaking cool the science we actually already know is, like how absolutely amazing some of this stuff really is, and how it all fits together. Like, I, I should probably um, explain what Dr. Stone is for a yeah. moment. Um, as best so I do- can. <laughs> as best I can. It's, it's, that's a good point. Okay. Yeah. Actually, no, it's not that difficult. It's Buck Rogers. Okay. I mean, uh, there we go. I did it. All right. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's a more funky version. Okay. Basically, what happens is, is that in Dr. Stone, the whole world, all the humans on Earth, basically one day get turned to stone. And... Something ha- there's some weird. Now this is the fantasy part that kicks in that sets the whole thing off, right? There's this weird. There's this weird effect that turns everyone to stone, and they don't know why, and they don't know what happened. But regardless, the main character Senku wakes up about I think it's about three thousand years in the future, give or That's take like thirty six hundred, I think. Yeah, about that. And Senku is basically this genius scientist kid. And in fact, actually, there have kind of sort of been hints to the fact that Senku may not actually even be a normal human being. Okay. Um, I'm not spoiling anything because this is just, they're very vague hints, but there are little things here and there that kind of, you almost wonder whether Senku is actually like some genetically engineered kid or something like that. Hmm. Like he's definitely not normal. Now, he may just be supposed to be your one-of-a-kind thing, but the fact that Senku actually doesn't have any parents oh, makes you dad. wonder... What? Hmm? He's, he's got a dad. Spoiler. No, he doesn't. Anyway. Dun-dun. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, that's, that's his adopted dad. That's not his real oh, dad. Oh, okay. And in fact, there's actually we. I don't think we ever actually know who set. We we're we're never told who his parents actually are, and we're never okay. actually told again. In so far, I mean, it's in the hundreds right now of chapters. But no, there's something weird going on with Senku. There is, but anyway, we're not going to worry about that. We'll just go with he's the Einstein of his age. He's this mm-hmm. super Einstein kid who knows everything about science, period, and has an almost photographic memory of science and such. Anyway, so about so about 3,600 years in the future, Senku breaks out of this uh, petrified state and then basically decides, okay, um, well, what am I going to do with my life? He's only like 15, 16 years old. He knows almost all of uh, modern science. Um, and he's a super genius kid. So he's like, well... Why don't I try to recreate civilization? 
yeah, I'll just recreate civilization. And how is he going to do it? Through science. Mm-hmm. And so the main thing of Dr. Stone, if you read it or watch it, there's an anime. There's a, one season of an anime. There's a second season coming uh, about the end of the year. Maybe not because of COVID-19, but eventually it's coming around. Mm-hmm. And each chapter is about how they solve different problems using science. And building on the science things and like chemical processes and compounds and machinery and things like that, each thing builds on something else. So he saw, he creates three different things to solve three different problems. And then suddenly he's using those things to solve one big problem by combining them and showing you how science works and showing you how, you know, atomic properties and electricity and magnetism and all this stuff and how all this works. This is a comic, by the way, for like eight to 14 year olds in theory. Hmm. Um, and so it's showing them the wonders of science and how science can be used to solve problems and science can be used for everything from cooking to makeup to, um, you know, power and all kinds of things metallurgy like he senku is you know he's like i said super genius kid basically and he's using Mm. this stuff along with the people that he meets in the future which is a whole other story why there are actually some people who aren't um petrified and uh, that's a whole other story i'm not going to get into because that's spoiler territory but Mm. They he works with this village that eventually becomes his kingdom of science, and they they uh, they work against other people who are think science is evil and is going to just cause problems and needs to be stopped. And it's it's amazing story. One of the reasons I love it so much is because it brings such joy and enthusiasm to just the love of science itself and its power and its it the how science represents the human ability to solve problems and the best of humanity is basically manifest in science at least the science and technology we've developed Hmm. and that's one of the things i love about i love as you can tell obviously i love dr stone (laughs) a lot it's one of one of the things i read is the new chapters come out each week i rush to um shonen jumps online site to read them whenever i can i guess it kind of harkens back you know what it reminds me of in a weird way is macgyver Okay, yeah. If you think about it, it's because MacGyver was doing the same thing. He was taking basic scientific principles and then using them to um, solve problems and get his way out of trouble and such. Now, MacGyver was basically an adventure show. Um, in fact, there's actually, I think, a MacGyver series running right now, which I've never yeah. watched. But but I'm talking about the original one from the 1980s, uh, the one that everyone remembers. This new one, who knows if it's any good? It might be. I'm not going to trash talk it. I have no idea. I've just never watched it. But the original one from the 1980s had that same vibe where it's like, here's a dude who does not make guns with science, doesn't make weapons. He uses science and human knowledge to overcome his challenges and opponents and everything else and to, you know, make the world a better place. MacGyver was ultimately still an adventure show. Dr. Stone does a better job of making it more sciencey, but whatever. It does, you know, it does what it does. And the answer is make people think that science is awesome, which it is, it, or at least can be when used properly. Yeah, M- MacGyver kind of used – they called it science, but it was more magic. Like th- th- there was no attempt at plausibility in like anything MacGyver did. Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> my 14-year-old my, my, my bro- <laughs> self's heart is broken at this point, Don. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've just ruined my life. <laughs> If I remember right, that's not quite true, but I, I think you're kind of half right. 
where I think he he a lot of the science he was using was was science that basically produced uh, magic like effects like you know you know puffs of smoke and illusions it would like him pop out a door knock, lock or something like that he'd burn something out things like that which is like oh it's feasible but he's he's using it for small like nifty little effects that are borderline what they're what magicians use basically as much as they are or more than what scientists do but whatever there were some scientific basis for what he does Kind of, because I'm thinking Dr. Stone definitely does try to make things as plausible as possible. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but MacGyver did stuff like, I can think of an episode where he got a giant fan in a parachute and used the giant fan to blow into the parachute to drag himself like away, and no, that doesn't work at all in real life. Okay, you got me there. Yeah, there's, there were there were a few episodes where I, I remember watching it with Doke, and you'd have to do CPR on Doke because he'd be laughing so hard at some of the silliness. But you're right that there was an attempt to make it feel plausible. Okay. Like I say, they didn't always hit that mark. Succeed. Yeah, but, but yeah, Doctor Stone definitely does does take because I think you're right too that something like Doctor Stone, it's about the the wonder of knowing things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. The wonder of knowing and how science really what it does is it brings knowledge to us. And that that's kind of the point. Here, science is applied knowledge. That's <laughs> the way I tried to think of it. It's a, it's it's knowledge applied to our world around us to solve problems and to make people's lives better or worse as the case may be. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I would say it's made our lives better. I mean, we do live in one of the most peaceful times in human history. Uh, more people right now are eating well than have ever eaten before in human history. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are We're living longer than ever before. We are, um, you know, more people are uh, connected to other people, whether that's good or bad, than ever before. Um, we actually can, you know, face something like COVID-19 and we can look at it and go, okay, how are we going to solve this? And there are huge scientific efforts being made to solve it and quickly produce uh, tests for it and quickly produce uh, vaccines for it, which unfortunately, thanks to the small problem of, you know, reality is still going to take till probably sometimes like next year, but whatever. The point mm-hmm. is, is that we're still able to apply that stuff in a way that we never could before. I mean, the last time we had such a major global plague basically that really affected people was like the spanish flu like a hundred years ago Mm -hmm. and look how much damage that did and yet we managed to relatively speaking fairly because of information science and because of knowing hey there's that shit going on over there in china we should be paying attention to that a lot of countries managed to get it under control or lock things down or keep things like there's new zealand or taiwan or south korea there are countries that managed to actually get get their crap together and basically are doing very well right now mm-hmm. um, and have, have been affected very little by the, the disease. Then there's other countries that didn't pay attention and are suffering horribly, but we're not going to talk about them. Um, mm-hmm. But the key point is, is that that knowledge and that information, ability to connect with other people has helped us prevent it from becoming as bad as it possibly could be, even in the countries where it hasn't gone as well as it could go. Mm-hmm. So I would argue that science overall has made the world a better place for humans anyway. Whether right. it's made a better place for the rest of the species on Earth, that's a little more debatable. But it's definitely made the world better for humans. Right. 
And that's, but I think that's a whole other show where we could talk about that, where the idea of whether, whether humanism is actually opposed, diametrically, diametrically opposed to environmentalism. It's a good question. Um, and it's one that I've occasionally wrestled with from time to time because, you know, at the, as we make humans' lives better, we've been doing a wonderful job of making the life of the rest of the planet worse. Mm-hmm. But again, too, that kind of ties in with what we were getting at the beginning. Mm-hmm. That when you look at something like, say, the Industrial Revolution. Right. We didn't have the concepts or the equipment to really gauge a lot of what were essentially immediate effects even. Mm-hmm. It's true. Like that, that's the, the example that, that comes up a lot is if you think about the London fog. Right. That from like the 1800s that, that everybody sees as this like weird, like almost romanticized thing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> a lot of that London fog was actually smog from the factories and every night that it got bad, it killed a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was because we never, we never even imagined something like that, right? Like that. We could mm-hmm. produce enough toxic smoke in a, a given area that it would be a hazard to people. I mean, like, you'd put a hole in your fucking roof and it vents out and then it disappears in the atmosphere, right? That's how this works. Exactly. Exactly. But eventually they figured out, wait, no, it doesn't all just go away. There's not an unlimited supply of air. That We are we are polluting this environment. Because mm-hmm. it's, so. interesting. it's interesting mm-hmm. you mentioned Dr. Stone. Okay, why so? Because if you remember, the uh, the Kingdom of Science's arch enemy was the, what was it, the Empire of Muscle, they called them? Pretty much, yes, yeah. And that was basically all the meatheads who thought that, like, people should stay in a primitive state and, like, be strong and tough, and that was the right way to live. Mm-hmm. It's It's interesting that part of their argument amounted to the idea that once you start on the scientific road... Mm-hmm. it kind of becomes a treadmill that you always have to be moving forward on it because any solution you create today is likely going to cause tomorrow's problem. And then you're going to have to come up with a yes. solution to that and, and it carries on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's true. And I, I think that goes with one of the ideas of like um, a lot of the anti-science sentiment that you'll see in, in stories or real life. Mm-hmm is in part that idea. So it's like that back to nature thing is that we want to just kind of turn off the progress because that will minimize the damage we're causing. Mm-hmm. You, you also see that with a lot of um, like theological arguments against that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Make that argument that if you're going to, to advance society as it were, that that leads invariably to, to decadence. Mm-hmm. That it leads to like a, a depreciation of the human spirit and that. And that's why adhering to the old ways is best because that's what got us this far. Except when it mm-hmm. didn't. But we can lie to ourselves about that sometimes. Right. Yeah, we can. We're pretty good at it. And I think, yeah, again, because whenever you see an anti-science story, mm-hmm. it's usually along one of those lines. It's it's like the idea of like most post-apocalypses. There's the big whoops that we push things too far and then that's mm-hmm. what nearly wiped us out. And then it's only by by usually a return to either an older way or putting more of value on on the human as opposed to the technological. 
that we find our way. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of ties into that idea of like the, the olden days were better because prior to World War II, manpower mm-hmm. was important. Yeah, yeah. Like to till the fields or to work the factories. Because even though we had automated factories, they weren't anything like today. You still needed like human muscle to make things work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons you'll you'll see that kind of pro-human concept come up in anti-science stories because it kind of harkens back to that it's that idea that we're not those hippie freaks that want to live completely in nature and not wear shoes and stuff but we could Mm -hmm. go back we could go back to the waltons era kind of thing and that was that was better because again it was about the human and human connection and and being part of your community and and blah 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 i Yes, that's true. I mean, I don't entirely. Well, this is the thing, though. Okay, I just to make a counter argument for a moment. I know where I know I'm getting off track a tiny bit here because this one of the things I've realized as I've you know had to do research into the history of media and such that that for most of human history, the main source of media and entertainment was other people. Mm-hmm. We really did have a better connection with humanity and with each other. Once upon a time, one of the things that media has done is it's let us basically do away with our connection to other people. Right. Like one of the things that modern society has done is it's let us do away with our connection to the world around us so that we can exist almost as our, our independent self, um, self-controlling automata that just live in isolation from the rest of the world around us. Uh-huh. Or at least think we do anyway. And that's one of the things that I do think was lost. I do think modern technology, especially modern media technology, but even modern technology in general, has done a wonderful job of separating us from other people. Mm-hmm. And basically taking and from our society in general. I mean, once upon a time you lived in a t- village or town where you knew most people, people knew you, and that's, you know, you were, you were part of a community, even if you were the crazy guy that, you know, that talked about the stars and, you know, and uh, talked in the old tongue about the legendary Lord Cthulhu. That was still something that you, that, you know, it's like, oh, that's, you know, that's uh, Crazy Howard over there. That's okay. You know, and people would have avoided Crazy Howard, but they still knew about Crazy Howie, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas today, Crazy Howie is just left alone to be, exist in a drug and alcohol-filled stupor, maybe to try to control his madness and is basically left to die on the streets. Whereas in the old days, at least people would put out food for Crazy Howie or something like that because they felt sorry for him because he was still a member of the community and they still felt at least a little bit connected to him. Sort of. Um, until he starts <laughs> until he starts kidnapping people's goats and sacrificing them to Cthulhu, and then that was a problem. But whatever, we're not going to go there. The point is, my point is this is, actually, this is an odd thing. They discovered a while ago that you do realize that mental illness in North America manifests differently than it does in most parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Schizophrenics in North America have a much higher rate of violent thoughts and violence than they do in other cultures and other parts of the world. Yeah, that's true. And, <laughs> and one of the things they think is going on is, is the fact that they are in other parts of the world, they're still connected to society. And in mm. fact, one of the treatments for schizophrenia in some places of the world is is the is kind of like bringing them more into the uh, into the 
culture into the society and trying to heal them kind of by making them part of the group, which they find actually has great positive benefits to it. Whereas in our society, we just tend to reject them even more, give them drugs that often make them worse and tell them, go live in that little hovel over there and stop bothering us. Yeah. Of course, we used to lock them up and do that instead, which wasn't any much better, but whatever. The point is, is that I guess what I'm trying to say is that this is my problem with the, oh, you know, that that stupid crap about, you know, the Waltons and all that being living a better life. No, those people actually in so many cases did live a better life. Now, as in human connection and maybe their happiness level might have been a little better and they were better connected to each other. They died a lot younger than we did. They had their problems. They had massive amounts of spousal abuse. They had massive amounts of, you know, uh, other issues that they often hid from the community around them and such. But at the same time, on a more connected human level, they actually did live a better life, I would argue. Not in all cases, but in some cases anyway. Again, I'm not a go back to nature kind of guy, but I can <laughs> see that there, I can see that there was that benefit, and one could make a very good argument that that's a good chunk of what is quote unquote fantasy is that is that back to nature movement kind of uh, brought into fiction and idealism, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you get to some of the isekai about guys going to other fantasy worlds and becoming farmers, right? <laughs> which there's a surprising amount of actually, right. Or going off and starting a pizza place in a, you know, in a fantasy town or things like that. I mean, it's about getting back to that connection with the world around us. Ironically enough, most of these coming out of Japan, which is a country that they figure will be almost entirely abandoned outside of the cities by about, I think it's like 2060 or 2070 or something like that. There will almost be no people living outside of the urban centers in Japan. Yeah, but remember the caveat to that is because the whole country will be paved over by then. Well, there is that. Um, This is from, I was just watching NHK last week, the Japan National Broadcaster, and they were talking about that. And this has become a bit of a concern because all the young people move to the cities and it's just seniors living out in the country. Right. Um, So the cities will basically be these massive, uh, wonderful places and the places that it's that are still remain as countryside, will either be tourist areas or savage wastelands um, ruled over by mutants and uh, martial artists. <laughs> either way. Cool. Exactly. That's Now there's a place you want to live, right? Right. Um, anyway, so I'm, I'm trying to remember where I was going with. Oh, yeah. So this that was my, sorry, that was my take on the whole, you know, the old days sucked. Well, the old days did kind of suck in some ways, but they were better than others. And modern mm. life sucks in some ways and in, is better in others. That's just that's the, way, the nature of human life. It doesn't matter what era you live in. Though the amount of suckage, one could argue, does actually change depending. Yeah, I mean, and it, it yeah. depends on how you define it. That's true. Because don't forget, back in the day, Crazy Charlie would like probably be shunned and live on handouts. But mm-hmm. nowadays, Crazy Charlie can get on the internet and start a blog about how Tom Hanks is putting microchips in his water, make like a billion friends, start a commercial empire, and sell like, you know, like male supplements and bug out bags and be a millionaire. I don't know if that's better or not, but, you know, there we are. <laughs> well, at least Crazy Charlie has outlets that he can use to make money. Mm-hmm. And then eventually he can get a spot on Fox News. Or, or start or start doing it. infomercials. What? Hmm? Or whatever replaces it. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, I mean, uh, okay. Well, since, since we're there, let's. Um, 
So there is a good chunk of the American society, maybe up to a third of Americans, um, who basically either don't believe in science or don't believe in um, the scientific method or you know question um, the idea of um, scientists as I guess you could say elites in some ways or you know the idea that there are these people that you know know stuff that's actually valuable I mean you could argue that while we have developed into a great scientific age the questioning of science is becoming greater and greater as well yeah, I, I think you're right-ish. Mm-hmm. Because I think as usual. The, <laughs> well, it's 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 another one of those problems that I think you're you're technically right. Mm-hmm. But you have to sort of be wary of what people are considering science. Mm-hmm. Like it. Well, here, let's okay. I'll give you an example. Okay, okay. so. Uh, public understanding of the scientific method. This comes from uh, Pew Research. It's about a year ago. It's from uh, March 28, 2019. They, they released this, um, this poll. And they mm-hmm. found that 67% of Americans see the scientific method as an iterative process, as one that's developing and moving forward and needs to be tested and updated over time. Okay? 67%. 15% said uh, science identifies unchanging core principles and truths. And mm-hmm. then... Seventeen percent were just not sure about any of this stuff. Right. Okay. Um, and so that's about the scientific method and their understanding of the scientific method and how it works. Again, that's on average. It greatly depends on whether you have a high school education. Um, mm-hmm. High school, only fifty-six percent said the scientific method is one that's actually you know developing and growing, and our you know, our knowledge is changing. And then postgraduates, eighty-five percent of them said it is. So we're in a situation where those who are educated do tend to actually understand some of the nature of science and how it's growing and developing. We're still learning things, right? And we're still, there's so much we don't know. Whereas if you go to, um, but, but if in high school level, no, it's, it's, no, it's only just a little bit above 50% actually understand what the goals of science is and what science is actually trying to accomplish. Um, another, um, example, Republicans and Democrats in the United States from the same survey hold similar levels of science knowledge, um, depending Republicans and independents who lean on the Republican party average seven correct answers in a, uh, test that they did. Okay. Whereas Democrats and independents who lean towards Democrat party average 6.6. Wait, mm-hmm. what's this cover? Mean answers, correct answers out of 11. Um, well, that's interesting. So conservative Republicans and liberal Democrats tend to score higher on science knowledge, mm-hmm. which is the exact opposite of what most people would have actually expected. That's interesting. I suddenly realized that as I was reading it, as I'm sure you can tell. It's like, wait a moment. <laughs> the Republicans actually do it. The Republicans actually did better. OK, then in terms of scientific knowledge questions when they tested them. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. It is, and, and when you look at like uh, rhetoric on either either political end, mm. it it again goes with what are you defining science as? Because I'm thinking one of, one of my favorite examples was a rant that I saw on this mm. person's blog about how science and technology is just how the one percent keep us down, man. This person put on their blog that they wrote on their fucking cell phone on the internet. <laughs> Yep. Yes, that's right. That's that's why you're not allowed to say you're 
stupid empty opinion because you're being kept down by the science and technology that you're using to cite your stupid empty opinion. But again, it, it depends what, what you call. We tend to, things we like are good, things mm-hmm. we don't like are bad, and we'll fudge things to fit that. Right. And it turns out my, my memory card actually is full. That's oh, okay. kind of weird. That's a little strange. Bum, bum, really bum. Hold on a sec. Now, mind you, we're still recording through Skype, and I, I think the quality is probably good enough. We can just use the Skype recording for this. I guess we'll just end up using that. We were discussing the political differences in scientific oh, yes. achievement. Yes, 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 about them. Um, so, yeah, um, I guess that it depends. I mean, they did find that liberal Democrats actually did score best on the test. That was part of when they went party by ideology, they actually mm-hmm. found that the liberal Democrats were actually the best informed. But again, we don't know what questions they were asking. Yeah. We don't know what, uh, we don't know how they were determining about that knowledge as you were just saying. So there's not really, it's, it's hard to judge what this really means. Yeah. And I'm betting the difference wasn't that great. Because mm. it's well, it, yeah. it's usually mm-hmm. portrayed that the right, because they tend to be like the religious types, mm-hmm. are diehard anti-science. Right. But that's an example of where, like I say, it depends what you're calling science. That both sides, because people are all the same. We're all we're, we're not that different, no matter how different we think we are. Mm-hmm. And you'll find that okay, so even the most like inbred mutant grade two educated Georgian <clears throat> mountain dwelling shotgun shack living hillbilly loves his F-150. Yeah, that's true. He, mm. he, he may rail against like them doctors cause they're just working with George Soros to put a chip in your head so that Tom Hanks can control you. And they may not see the point of putting a guy on the moon cause there's nothing up there and you're just wasting taxpayers money. But he loves his truck and probably a shotgun and that's science and technology. Mm-hmm. And if, if you point that out in all likelihood, you'll get an explanation about how, no, that's not, that's a truck. Trucks are cool. It's that science stuff is that stupid things that all of them like, you know, liberal arts people are always talking about. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's the same on the other side. Like I said, with that person, talking about how technology is just used to keep everybody down man well Mm. yes and no it's a much more complicated issue if you point out you mean like your cell phone no man i customize my cell phone this is like my life link to yeah yeah shut up you don't know anything either i Mm. i know i know a pickup truck driver guy you guys should talk you're a lot alike but Mm -hmm. and and again it's it's that it's that that human nature kind of thing Mm mm-hmm and again, it's it's perception, and it's that problem that you run into in pop culture because what you consider science and how you present science in your story is going mm-hmm. to depend on what people think science is. Right, yeah. Like Dr. Stone, you can really go, you know, the hardcore science route because everything he does looks like the kind of experiments you do in high school. Mm-hmm. Which is on purpose, of course, yeah. Yeah. 
because it's something we recognize as science. However, when you see like the uh, the fantasy story with the evil king, yes, what we should do is go into the town. I want you to take the important leaders and kill every second one of them. That's technically science too. That's psychology, but we don't recognize mm. it as such because we've never had it called that, so we don't think of that. It's mm-hmm. a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. We generally don't think of that. We just call that being smart and crafty. But yeah, that's that is a form of science. It is. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to what I said earlier. Science is just applied knowledge. Yep. Yeah, it's applied human knowledge, and whether we see it as good or bad, or whether it's portrayed as good or bad, that will depend on who's doing the portraying and what their experiences are with science, and often their misunderstandings of science, as you just pointed <laughs> out. Yeah, and and. In, in 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 entertainment, what you're using it for, mm-hmm. that you can use, say, your hard sciences as the anchor that gives your thing consistency. Right. Uh, you can use it as window dressing. Mm-hmm. You can use it as, as flavoring. Like that's, you mentioned MacGyver, and I would say the idea in MacGyver was the science was flavoring. Right. The whole point is we wanted to make the audience feel that this guy was some kind of like freaky super genius guy. Mm -hmm. And that was why the actual hardness of the science we used that can be on a sliding scale, but we wanted it to look like something the audience would think of as he's very knowledgeable. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And they did a good job of it. And a whole generation grew up thinking that MacGyver was like a scientific genius. Yeah. It's an adjective now. Yeah, to MacGyver something. I know. Yeah. And how many people use that word and don't know that's from a show? I don't hear it that often. Do you? Oh, yeah. I've, I've, I hear it uh, fairly often. I, given your line of work, you probably would. Um, <laughs> but no, and it, yeah, it's a Mag- to MacGyver okay. something. Yeah, yeah. well, it's because it was such a part of culture. And again, one of the better representative, one of the better representations of science used well that we've had, whether it was entirely accurate or not, is uh, entirely you know, up to the viewer's point of view. Um, and you'll know, we'll notice that we do tend to actually idealize, going back to your wizard theory in some ways, um, great people of science, great men and women of learning and great men and women of science tend to be idealized in our society. It kind of depends, because we talked about this when we discussed like raw intelligence and how it's portrayed. Mm, true, true. That that there are catches to it, because, again, I think science and scientific knowledge and entertainment, it's like magic. Mm. And depending on who's wielding it, yeah, we either admire them and, and that they're a great thinker, or we're terrified of them, because... <clears throat> They're the mad scientist, you know, they're the the genius. Think more about that particular topic, go find our episode linked in the show notes about, um, you know, IQ and intelligence in popular culture. Mm -hmm. Because they are seen as separate. Mm -hmm. The idea of a scientist is different from the idea of a genius a lot of times. Well, genius is usually portrayed as something that's almost innate. Mm-hmm. Where science is usually the result of actual learning and study, and those can, those overlap, but those are not the same thing. At least not the way they're portrayed. 
Yeah, not portrayed and, and kind of kind of conceptualized because thinking on it, mm-hmm. one of the greatest scientists in pop culture is not considered a scientist. Are you thinking of Sherlock Holmes? That's exactly who I was thinking of. That we don't think, but he's that he's a scientist. He's he is he, he absolutely is yeah. But we don't think of it that way because. Essentially, he's not building a death ray or a giant robot. And like I said, mm-hmm. we conflagrate science and technology. Yep. But he's a scientist. He, he, he tests theories. He has like a wide body of knowledge. He's, he's well-versed in physics and chemistry and psychology and all these other things. But mm-hmm. we, we see him as a genius. And I think maybe, yeah, that, that the strictest difference is because he's not building something. Yeah, he doesn't build gadgets or machines or any of that stuff. He just uses it to figure things out. He's using the science of psychology, the science, as he refers to it, literally, I believe, the science of deduction. Mm-hmm. The uh, He uses the scientific method. He's using science, but he just isn't building crap, as you put it out. Because mm-hmm. another thing that I think is funny looking at it that way is another one of the greatest scientists in pop culture hates scientists. Which one? Uh, Granny Weatherwax. Uh, okay. From the Discworld books. Remember, her specialty is headology. Mm-hmm. That she she's a psychiatrist. She's a she's she's made a study, and she references that a lot in her different things. That she's made a study of human nature, and her understanding of what makes people tick is what gives her her power, not her magic. Right. And, and yet she hates newfangled things and people with new ideas and think they should all just shut up because they make things worse. It's, it's funny that she's a scientist who hates other scientists. Mm-hmm. Well, very true. Mm-hmm. I guess, again, we don't think about just how many things and people around us are the result of science or using science or what a, what a role science really plays in our lives. We just mm-hmm. think of, as you just pointed out, we think of science as building stuff we think of science as tony stark as yeah. iron man is a building crap science and technology that's what it does it's einstein it's tony stark but it's really not mm-hmm. it's actually and this is something that i often think about when i'm because i enjoy cooking actually science is cooking mm-hmm. you know if you want to think about it one of the greatest modern scientists we have around is actually gordon ramsay mm-hmm and well, okay, and some of his ilk, but my point is this: is they are chemists <laughs> who use physics, they use chemistry, they they use it to produce food. Mm-hmm. Your average, you know, your average homemaker, male or female or other, is actually using science every day to make food. Mm-hmm. And we're using scientific principles to make food. We're using scientific principles in every aspect of our life. Yet we don't think of it that way. We just think science equals, you know, Einstein. Mm-hmm. And the great wizards on the hill, and it and it's funny because when you when you you mention that that cooking is science, that's a big part of Doctor Stone. It is actually, yeah, it is. Eventually, mm-hmm. it becomes a big part of Doctor Stone too. Yeah, he covers that. I knew yeah. that already, but yeah, but that the fact that Doctor Stone's made a point of actually trying to point out just how many different aspects science has from from psychology and the social sciences, which of course is what uh, Gen is part of, to yeah. um, and to navigation and understanding around the world, which is Ryusei, um, to even 
kind of, they've kind of touched on it, but they haven't exactly. The science of human development, of bodybuilding and training and such. That's been touched mm-hmm. on a little bit, but they haven't quite gone there too far because for the most part, the muscle heads were the bad guys. Yeah. So, but yeah, overall, Dr. Stone is trying to show the whole human world is science. Mm-hmm. And this world that we've built upon ourselves and science is knowing how to use the different aspects of this world and how cool it can possibly be. And that's why Dr. Stone is something that each and every one of you listeners should be either reading or watching because it is truly unique and awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and entertainingly weird. <laughs> and entertainingly weird. And it has a fair amount of cheesecake too for those, you know, those who <laughs> like that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the weird, uh, <laughs> the weird way that you know World War Three is fought because with cotton candy, yeah, <laughs> that it all ties in. It does. It absolutely does, and it goes. Oh, dude, it gets much so much weirder from where you are. <laughs> um, but anyway, well, we'll talk about that another time. So, um, so listener, please recognize the power of science in your daily life, and. Don't be fooled by the uh, the pop culture version of science that is basically this simplified, mass-produced, um, glitzed-up distraction over the wonders of science in the world around us every single day. And that there are people who are using science all around you right now. You don't have to be Tony Stark to be a master scientist. Mm-hmm. You just have to actually fit, learn how to cook. So learn how to cook, okay? <laughs> and I don't mean cook mess. Talking to you, Walter White. <laughs> uh, or sorry, Walter White wannabes, whatever. Anyway, so um, thank you, Don, and thank you listeners for listening. Hopefully you've enjoyed the show and uh, it's given you a few things to think about. It definitely has for, I think, for me, maybe for Don as well. And um, please, if you like the show and want to uh, give us some feedback, please drop by obeythedna.com as per usual and check out the show notes and um, let us know why we're completely wrong because we love to hear (laughs) that kind of stuff. So on that note, good night, everyone. Thanks for listening. And always remember, cite at least three different sources for your facts. Bingo. You've made the teacher and me happy, Don. Good night, (laughs) folks. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!